Hi, this is Lily Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Today's episode is section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants, another powerhouse section. There are so many treasures in this wonderful book of scripture. It starts right off with a summary, again, of life and salvation. Verse 1, every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me and calleth upon my name and obeyeth my voice and keepeth my commandments shall see my face and know that I am. There it is. There's the path. We forsake our sins. We come unto Christ. We call on his name and obey his voice and keep his commandments. And that leads us to see the face of God. Even in this life, if we pursue that path toward calling election, made sure to see the face of God. But certainly in the next life, if we are on that path and we pursue it in faith. Then some beautiful language here in section 93, which talks a lot about Christ and Christ's being the light and the light of truth. So I just want to read some of these gorgeous verses. Verse 2, I am the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So we understand about the light of Christ. Every person has a portion of this great light that comes from Jesus Christ. And then he's in the Father and the Father in me in verse 3. And he talks about how he received and, and talks about John, the apostle who wrote also about Christ being in the beginning. Some beautiful combinations of those ideas. Verse 8, Therefore, in the beginning, the word was, for he was the word, even the messenger of salvation, the light and the redeemer of the world, the spirit of truth, who came into the world because the world was made by him, and in him was the life of men and the light of men. That language is stunningly beautiful to me. I hope that, you know, we sit and ponder those words sometimes and just think of what all that means, that Christ, the Redeemer of the world, the Spirit of truth, the world was made by him, and in him was the life of men and the light of men. Such beautiful words. Verse 10, the worlds were made by him, men were made by him, all things were made by him, and through him, and of him. And John bears record in verse 11, records that he beheld his glory, and the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Even the spirit of the truth. So much here about truth. We're going to talk about that today. And then in verse 12, I, John, saw that he received not of the fullness at the first, but received grace for grace. My husband loves these verses in here and says he uses them often. My husband, Chris, is also counselor and he has worked for family services for a very long time. He has been at the MTC, one of his favorite assignments in family services. He's been there a couple of times for several years. And he said that you know, this was really helpful with some of these missionaries who come in with these problems of being perfectionists. Seems to be an issue in our culture sometimes, right? That many people kind of struggle with elements of perfectionism or full-blown perfectionism, thinking that they have to be perfect right now, and they put really unrealistic expectations on themselves or on others around them, and it can really create a lot of emotional distress and a lot of control issues. And anyway, some serious issues that come from that, and Chris says, here it is, it's right here. Even Christ grew from grace to grace. He received not of the fullness at first, but eventually received it. So anyway, he thinks that's a, a wonderful way to remind ourselves that perfection is a process. It doesn't come, as Elder Nelson taught when he was in the quorum, it doesn't come until the resurrection, when we are fully perfected. That was from a conference speech that Elder Nelson gave. I also love the words in verse 19, 
I give unto you these sayings that you may understand and know how to worship and know what you worship, that you may come unto the Father in my name and in due time receive of his fullness. That's beautiful that we should know how to worship partly by knowing what we worship. To understand the glory of Christ helps us to worship him more fully. And that is, of course, true. We know that at the end, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Why? Because everyone will see him as he is in the fullness of his glory and majesty. And everyone will, of necessity, kneel to that and bow to that because of the awareness of his greatness So how much better if we acknowledge that now and learn that now. We learn who we worship and how great he is so that we can worship more fully and more completely. I've already referenced lectures on faith on this topic where in lecture third, Joseph Smith talks about how our faith is necessarily based on an understanding of God, knowing that he exists. Second, understanding his character, his excellencies, his attributes, his perfections. And third, knowing that the course we are pursuing is in accordance with his will. And as we come to know Christ in that way and at that level, our worship of him increases. Kind of obvious when you think about it, right? Of course, the promise is given in section 93 after talking about how Christ had a fullness, not at first, but he grew from grace to grace and then received a fullness that we also, if we follow his path and live the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we too can receive of a fullness as a part of our progress at the completion of our journeys. So now we're going to go to verse 24 and get into some stuff that I find incredibly exciting and really important. I hope that you'll also enjoy it. So verse 24, and truth is knowledge of things as they are, and as they were, and as they are to come. Now take a second on that. This is a pretty powerful definition that truth is knowledge of things as they are, and as they were, and as they are to come. It's the reality of all things, past, present, future. It's how things really are. Now, a lot of times in the therapies, we say that, you know, perception is reality. And that is true when it comes to how people operate, because how we see things is going to inform how we interact or how we respond to to situations. So perception is really important to understand how we see things and what people are perceiving and what understandings or misunderstandings might exist in relationships or in certain situations. And if we can correct some of those misperceptions, hopefully all of them, if we can broaden understanding of reality, we get a better outcome always if we get closer to what truth is. So, you know, in marriage counseling is always really interesting or any kind of family dynamic counseling where, you know, occasionally I've met with one partner first, or, you know, I often meet with them separately, even if we meet together first to get kind of acquainted. And then I want to be able to kind of understand each partner and where they're coming from. So we uh, shortly afterwards, we meet one on one. Anyway, sometimes when I'm finished with having heard from both spouses, I want to ask, so what color is your carpet? (laughs) Because I'm pretty sure they're not living in the same house. They're certainly not living in the same reality. They're telling this story so differently, you start to wonder, you know, are these people really married to each other? Because they don't see the world at all the same way. One is calling black, white, the other is calling white, whatever. It's different. It's different from one person to the other. Now, obviously, you know, my responsibility is to see if we can get to some kind of shared reality. Because if we can't understand things 
in a pretty overlapping way, we're sunk. We're sunk. We've got to be able to understand what what really is and what really was and what really is coming. Now, I often will say, you know, I don't have a video recording or I don't have any kind of, you know, digital or record of what happened. So we can't go back and find out what really happened or what really was said in that discussion or that argument or that fight. So we try to give some slack to each party and say like, okay, let's see if we can come a little closer to reality. And a great deal of our success is going to be based on whether or not we can come to enough of a shared reality. So think about this with our marriages and how important it is that we see things at least similarly. Clearly, we're going to have different things that inform our perception. Our genders differ, our personalities, our backgrounds, our experience, all those things can create different perceptions. But when we're trying to bring people together, and of course, that is Zion, right? One heart, one mind, which would have to include, you know, a pretty shared vision of what reality is, right? In that one mind. So if we're going to be able to be Zion, we've got to start to see things clearly. Of course, we live in a crazy world, as many of us are aware. And it's so fascinating how we can hear the same news report or the same item being reported on by different groups. And it sounds entirely different. Talk about different perceptions. Talk about not seeing things in this shared reality. And that is really divisive, as you can see, that when you know, half the population is looking at something and seeing something a certain way, and then the other half is looking at exactly the same thing and seeing it entirely differently, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. And until we could have a shared view, we struggle. You know, communication becomes really important that we be able to talk about things, not in an adversarial, conflicted or contentious way, but in a way that we try to explain you know, our perception of things, our understanding of things as they really are, and then listen to other people talk about what they believe in terms of things as they really are. This is important in our marriages. Of course, it's wonderful if we marry in the temple, because at least we have some kind of shared vision of what has been, what is, and what can be. But we still have to keep working on that. (laughs) You know, my husband and I have been married probably, I don't know, just a few years. We were expecting our third child and Chris started his graduate program in Oklahoma at the University of Oklahoma. And I remember in those two years that we were there, we kind of joked about this. We found so many differences between us that we kind of chuckled and said, you know, we could write a book about marriage. It would be called, All We Have in Common is Pizza. I like it and you don't. (laughs) Because it felt that different. It felt sometimes like everything was different. But the good news was that there were really a lot of things where we completely shared our perception. We both had testimonies of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. We both believe in God and Christ, and we see them in very, very similar ways. We have a testimony of Joseph Smith, of the living prophets, of testimony of the Book of Mormon. We believe in being good citizens. We believe in being honest. We believe in obeying basic commandments, you know, paying tithing. The more that's the same, the better off our chances are to create that unity and oneness in marriage. But it's also fascinating that as we, you know, join our two lives together, all the differences are what come to the surface. <laughs> you know, how do you load the dishwasher? You know, who does the shopping? You know, how do you divide the labor? You know, who's paying the bills? Who's taking care of these different tasks and so on? And you start to see all these differences. One thing that was that we didn't even discover for years, which is kind of a good thing in some ways, but in my family, my dad always took out the garbage. And in Chris's family, Chris's mother always took out the garbage. <laughs> 
So we somehow didn't ever have that conversation, but we got by because when I saw that the garbage was full, I would kind of take it out to help Chris out. And when Chris saw the garbage was full, he would take it out to help me. So I thought I was helping him with his job and he thought he was helping me with my job, but it worked because we were both helping. But sometime that came up later in, in our marriage that like, oh, but isn't that a guy's job? Don't men always take out the garbage? And my husband was like, no, I mean, that's a woman's job. You know, moms always take out the garbage. Anyway, it's funny how much our views can differ, but it's great if we're willing to give a little bit of slack or a lot of slack and go that extra mile. And then a lot of times those differences really can disappear into the woodwork. Okay, I'm getting distracted. Let me go back. Looking at verse 25, the verse that follows that definition of truth. And whatsoever is more or less than this is the spirit of that wicked one who was a liar from the beginning. So we're seeing the contrast here between truth and lies, truth and error. Truth is knowledge of things as they are, as they were, and as they are to come. And more or less than that is the spirit of Satan, who was the liar from the beginning. So some really important topics here to kind of include. Looking under gospel topics in the gospel library, under the title Satan, it says this. Satan directs his most strenuous opposition at the most important aspects of Heavenly Father's plan of happiness. For example, he seeks to discredit the Savior and the priesthood, to cast doubt on the power of the atonement, to counterfeit revelation. Focus on that word counterfeit for a moment. We're going to come back to that. To distract us from the truth and to contradict individual accountability. He attempts to undermine the family by confusing gender, promoting sexual relations outside of marriage, ridiculing marriage, and discouraging childbearing by married adults who would otherwise raise children in righteousness. So anyway, after talking about how Satan is trying to destroy the plan, which we know that he is a deceiver and he wants to counterfeit the truth, to distract from the truth, to contradict the truth and undermine the truth. These are some of the words that are used here and they're all really relevant. I want to focus on this idea of counterfeiting for a moment. Because Satan is the master counterfeiter. He takes these wonderful, lofty, true elements of the gospel, these true doctrines, and he distorts or counterfeits them. And there are so many examples. Let me talk for a minute about what I mentioned in section 88 about the three realms, celestial, terrestrial, celestial. And I talked about the different laws of the kingdoms. Well, one thing that I noticed as I studied and pondered about those three realms was that Satan always mimics the celestial. He's not too worried about the terrestrial, but he wants to go for the gold and he really loves to disrupt the celestial or deceive people into thinking that they're going down a celestial path when they're really going down a celestial path. And there are so many examples of this. There's no way I'm going to touch on all of them or even all the categories of it, but just a few that came to mind quickly. Certainly, we're in a world now where we're hearing all these great things about socialism and we've got a ton of college kids who are being taught that socialism is this great answer. Socialism is a counterfeit for the United Order. It is not a good principle. It enslaves. It does not liberate or free. It does not honor the individual. It does not honor agency or choice. It doesn't honor individual stewardship. 
The state takes everything and directs everything and makes all the choices and demands and then shares everything. So there's equality of outcome, which as we've said, is Satan's plan, that everybody gets the same thing. Everybody gets the same reward. And it doesn't matter what the individual chooses or desires or how they they exercise their agency. So these, this is a, a very common theme for Satan, that he takes the gold and he tries to counterfeit it. And people have been deceived. I think I mentioned before that David O. McKay made strong statements against communism and socialism after World War II because too many of the saints in this country were saying, wow, look, a whole, you know, superpowers using the United Order. And, and the prophet wanted to make it clear that that was a counterfeit. So this statement was actually a first presidency message in 1942, and it was included in the conference report of the April 1942 conference report, although it wasn't delivered in conference. It was a first presidency message, and it included these words, communism and all other similar isms, that would include socialism, of course, bear no relationship whatever to the united order. They are merely, look at this great language, the clumsy counterfeits which Satan always devises of the gospel plan. Satan wants to destroy truth. He wants to destroy our knowledge of things as they really are, as they were, and as they are to come. He wants to deceive, so he counterfeits. And one of his successful counterfeits, at least it seems to be successful again, is this rise of interest in socialism, which is a counterfeit to God's plan. So this is a really important thing to make sure we share with our children. They are getting really interesting messages in the world as Satan's counterfeits become, you know, devastatingly successful in some arenas. Now, of course, he won't win in the end, but right now he's, he's getting some good traction. What are some other counterfeits? What about pornography? Pornography is a counterfeit for love. It counterfeits the connection or the, uh, the ability to, to be with somebody and focuses only on lust instead of love. It's a counterfeit. It can never bring satiety, where we're truly satisfied with the connection and the value of a relationship, what true love can offer. It's a very successful counterfeit again, but it's dross. It has nothing to offer in terms of true happiness. There's another one of his counterfeits. Pleasure becomes a counterfeit of happiness. If he can arouse or titillate the appetites, you know, he makes people think that that's happiness. How many times have we heard people who leave the church say things like, oh, now I'm truly happy because I can do what I want. I can drink or I can smoke or do drugs or I can, you know, whatever. I can party and I feel so happy. And it's a counterfeit. And Satan has once again deceived that person into thinking that that is freedom instead of that freedom comes from fulfilling our potential, obeying the laws of the universe, and being able to become the best version of ourselves. But Satan's pretty successful with this pleasure versus happiness counterfeit. What about, you know, just Satan's plan next to God's plan? God presents this plan that enshrines agency and provides a savior, and Satan says, oh no, I'm going to do, I'm going to create all this wonderful thing where everybody succeeds or, you know, nobody really succeeds because nobody gets to use their choice, but it's going to look like everybody succeeded because nobody will be condemned and everybody, you know, gets to pass, go and collect $200. And I'm going to pretend that that's a successful plan when there's no meaning to it. There's no meaning because there's no choice. There's no intention. There's no way to effectuate and, 
and manifest our desires for good or for evil. So again, a huge counterfeit there. Of course, the Antichrist, who is the counterfeit of the Christ, who either says none of this is true or says, you know, you don't need to repent. Christ will save everybody. Anyway, there are many versions of that Antichrist, right? When I was talking with Chris about some of these ideas, um, he reminded me of something that I've often quoted with clients, and it's the first line of the novel Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. So you know this classic work written by one of these great Russian authors. Of course, you know, those Russians were pretty depressing authors in most cases, but they were some of them were quite brilliant, and they, they said some wonderful things in spite of those long Russian winters that probably made them all a little bit depressed. Anyway... The first line of Anna Karenina, and this is kind of funny because I read it when I was a junior in high school from my English class, but I hadn't touched it since. It wasn't a favorite book because it's a pretty tragic story. Nevertheless, about 20-some years later, I was starting to do counseling. And as I was meeting with people, this line came to my mind that I was pretty sure was the first line of Anna Karenina. <laughs> we didn't have... Google yet or the internet. So I had to actually go to a library or a bookstore. I don't remember which because I wanted to check and see if I was remembering that first line of Anna Karenina correctly. And I actually had remembered it correctly, but it was good to, to see it again and, and read it in its, you know, original form, which basically says this, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. That is a brilliant insight by Tolstoy. And I saw that as a counselor. I saw it in front of me every day that people who came in and maybe they had, you know, grief problem or they had some, you know, in, they wanted some additional resources for something, but they were generally happy people. They were all the same. They all do the same things. They treat people in the right ways. They, they have you know, this direction, this goodness, this, this clinging to appropriate values and virtues and moralities. Now, in Utah, most of my clientele are LDS. Not all of them are active. Or not all of them are LDS, but most of them are. But in Las Vegas, I had a little bit more of a mixture. And when I started doing counseling, it was there in Vegas. But I still could see that happy families were all doing the same things. But unhappy families all had different problems. In fact, sometimes people have asked me, boy, you know, you've probably seen it all, haven't you? I mean, you know, is there anything new that you haven't seen? And I'm like, you know what? I will never see it all because there are a million ways and plus, you know, a million plus ways to create misery. But there's really just one Lord, one faith and one baptism. There is one way to get it right. The rest of them are counterfeits. The rest of them are all deceptions, thinking that, I can keep my bad temper and still have a great marriage, or I can keep my secret addiction or vice, or I can, you know, hold grudges, or I can, you know, take lightly the things of the kingdom, but I can still be happy. Those are all counterfeits. They're all counterfeits. You know, thinking that beauty is defined the way the world is. Look at how the world has, has deceived us in terms of what beauty is and how much of an impact that can have on so many people, girls, young and old, and men too, who could fall for that instead of looking for, for the deeper things of a relationship. I'm not saying that good people can't be beautiful. I'm just saying that we need to get our, our priorities right. So King Benjamin put it this way in Mosiah chapter 4, verse 29, And finally, I cannot tell you all the things whereby you may commit sin, for there are diverse ways and means, even so many that I cannot number them. Let me emphasize again, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That is 
things as they really are. And anything that takes us off that path is a deception. Anything that seems to justify or rationalize departure from the commandments of God or a bending of the standards of God, those things are deceptions. And we need to be wise so that we don't fall into that trap of, of the evil one who ha- desires nothing more than to lie to us and to be believed. There was a really interesting speech. I thought it was really interesting that was given by David Bednar in a CES fireside in the year 2009. It was called Things As They Really Are. And he makes some wonderful statements about this topic. He says, I testify that as you desire to so learn, observe the commandments of God and continue in the faith, even until the end of your lives, you will be spiritually enlightened and protected. And according to your faithfulness and diligence, you will have the power to discern the deception and repel the attacks of the adversary. So that's the answer. If we desire to learn the truth, we observe the commandments of God, and we continue in the faith until the end of our lives, we will have the light. We've talked about this so many times, that if we receive light and continue in God, which is just what Bednar is saying here, we'll receive more light. It will enlighten and protect us. And as we live faithfully and with diligence in doing our part to progress and grow, we will have the power of discernment. You know, sometimes people even have like in a patriarchal blessing or another blessing, a mention of how they'll have a gift of discernment. And over the years, I've met some people who have clung to those ideas. But it's interesting, because some of them aren't using very good discernment. So I would suggest that discernment can be a gift, but we have to follow the principles on which discernment is given. So it's not just something where God says, you're going to have more discernment than this person, or this is your particular gift. We have to qualify for having this gift of discernment. And we need that gift, especially in an increasingly confused world where, as Isaiah prophesied, good is called evil and evil is called good. And to discern our path, we need to obey. What a surprise. If we want that discerning power, that light to fill our minds and keep us safe, we need to do it the Lord's way, not the world's way or not the adversary's way. Now, Bednar talks a lot about the internet and he talks about how much virtual reality there is at a time and in a way that can be very harmful. Now, obviously, there are great things that can come from technology if we use them wisely, but the adversary tries to twist everything and again, create these counterfeits or these deceptions. Another statement by Bednar in that speech, we live at a time when technology can be used to replicate reality, to augment reality and to create virtual reality. And then he talks about some of the dangers of, you know, having these online presences that are not even, you know, not even an avatar that looks like the person or is realistic, but it's some fantasy recreation of oneself that then is represented to other people as if it's, you know, supposed to be some semblance of reality or things as they really are, and it can really create problems. One fascinating and tragic statistic that Bednar quotes in that speech is from a Wall Street Journal article in August 2007. And this is the finding. It says nearly 40% of men and 53% of women who play online games said their virtual friends were equal to or better than their real life friends. According to a survey of 30,000 gamers conducted by a recent PhD graduate from Stanford University. Let me just review that. 40% of men and 53% of women, and this is back in 2007. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm guessing things have gotten worse. 
40% of men, 53% of women back in 2007 said their virtual friends were equal to or better than their real life friends. That is not things as they really are. Lots of reasons. There's another one to not let our children get overly saturated with, with this online virtual reality. We need them to be able to have their feet grounded on things as they really are. Bednar also includes this warning that the Savior has warned us repeatedly to beware of deception by the adversary. And he quotes from Matthew 1. Actually, it's the Joseph Smith version of Matthew chapter 1, saying that Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For in those days there shall also arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if possible they shall deceive the very elect who are the elect according to the covenant. Now, I am so grateful for that language that if possible, they shall deceive the very elect. In other words, it's not possible to deceive the elect. If we are continuing in the light, if we are following faithfully in the path of obedience to the commandments of God, then we will not be deceived. That's, that's the formula. And then again, another summary statement by Elder Bednar, obedience opens the door to the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. Again, the constant companionship, that isn't what we get when we're a confirmed member of the church. It's what we qualify for as we become boringly consistent in our obedience. Boring consistency. We want to be, we want people to be able to set the time by our obedience. They count on us. They can count on us to obey the commandments of God, to work to keep our covenants. We aren't perfect, but if we are diligent and consistent about these things, we can qualify for the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. And going on with Bednar, and the spiritual gifts and abilities activated by the power of the Holy Ghost enable us to avoid deception and to see, to feel, to know, to understand, and to remember things as they really are. What a beautiful phrase. This is wonderful language and so important for us to seek this knowledge of things as they really are and to not be deceived. Now, I wanted to mention another way that we can be deceived, and that is confusing the means and the ends. And I'm referencing here a speech by Elder Dallin Oaks that was a BYU devotional address in February of 1999 called Weightier Matters. And he's using that scripture, he's drawing from that scripture that is in the New Testament where Christ is talking to the Pharisees. And it's from Matthew 23, verse 23, saying, Ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. And in other words, he's saying there are some commandments that are more important than others, and you should do all of them, but don't do some of them and neglect the weightier matters of the law. Don't just make gestures at obedience or you know, it's kind of like sacrifice, you know, sometimes in, in the Old Testament, there was Saul, Samuel had to correct Saul and say, obedience is better than sacrifice. You can't bargain with the Lord that I'll pay a little extra tithing or make extra donations, but I don't want to have to actually obey the commandments. We need to make sure we are not neglecting the weightier matters of the law. So in this wonderful speech, and I really encourage you to read and study it and share it. If you've seen it before, it's worth the review. If you haven't, it's definitely worth studying. And one of the big messages of Elder Oaks in this speech is we must not confuse means and ends. So here's another way that Satan can deceive us and does deceive many in this day. 
he says the vehicle is not the destination. You know, means are different from ends. Few concepts, again, this is Elder Oaks, have more potential to mislead us than the idea that choice or agency is an ultimate goal. To secure our agency and mortality, we fought a mighty contest the book of Revelation calls a war in heaven. But our war to secure agency was won. The test in this post-war mortal estate is not to secure choice, but to use it to choose good instead of evil so that we can achieve our eternal goals. Those are the ends. Again, Elder Oaks, immortality, choice is a method, not a goal. And he, of course, then goes and talks about how this is one of Satan's great deceptions. He's even moved or named an entire movement, a pro-abortion movement, which as Elder Oaks reviews, violates the commandment to not kill. And we know that there are some exceptions to that when the health of the mother is damaged or if this was a, a product of rape or incest that, you know, the brethren have been very clear that there are certain circumstances where it might be an exception, but that in most cases, it's just for the convenience of the adult and wanting to avoid the consequences of choices that were made previously. So in that case, you hear we've got Satan who has so successfully taken this and turned it into pro-choice. Well, how deceptive is that? How many young people or adults are lured into thinking, well, yeah, I'm in favor of choice. And sometimes we have a lot of Latter-day Saints who are confused about that because we know that agency is a great gift and we shouldn't deny agency. Well, so people make this mistake of confusing freedom with agency and thinking that I can't vote for anything to restrict anybody's choice because that would be anti-doctrinal or anti-agency. That's not true. That's a deception. That's confusing the means with the ends. Choice is a method. It's not the ultimate goal. The goal is to choose the right thing. So again, just reiterating this thought, the war to secure agency was already won. We don't have to fight that battle on earth. People have agency no matter what. Like you can put me in a stone box and bury me three miles deep. I still have a choice whether or not I worship God or I don't. Because that's what agency is about, choosing good or evil. It's not the freedom to do whatever I want and get away with it. That's not, that's not agency. Agency is to choose good or choose evil, to choose God or not to choose God. So anyway, again, Elder Oak's words, the test in this post-war mortal estate is not to secure choice, because that's already happened. We can't take away people's agency. Even if we tried, we don't have the power to take away their ability to choose right from wrong. It is not to secure choice, but to use it to choose good instead of evil so we can achieve eternal goals. Choice is a method, not a goal. Really an important idea, worth pondering, worth reading this speech, worth thinking about it. When Shortly after we moved to Utah, there was a ballot issue where it had to do with making it easier to buy alcohol. And I forget exactly what the details were, but this is something that had happened in Utah before. I remember when I was in high school in Utah, there was a, something called liquor by the drink where they were, again, having a ballot issue that would make it easier to buy alcohol. And the church leaders, again, who do not usually, in, you know, make a statement about how we should vote. But in this case, church leaders, both at the time when I was in high school and then also at the time later when we had moved back to Utah many years later, had said that they advised against making it easier to consume or, or to purchase alcohol. And yet it was interesting because, you know, that came up sometimes in conversation, in social settings. And some really wonderful members of the church 
we knew they were good people. They were good people, but they were deceived. And they said, well, I don't want to vote to limit anybody's agency. Now, that's a deception, and Satan is so successful in making it seem like we have the, even the capacity to take away agency. But agency is not the same as freedom, and we conflate those two all the time. And there are so many parents that I've heard over the years, and it, I mean, I weep when I hear this, that, that say, well, I don't want to interfere with my child's agency. And I said, kind of, who do you think you are? <laughs> you know, God gave that gift. You can't take it away. Your children have the right to choose God or not choose God. They have the right to choose good or evil. But that is not the same as freedom. And to, to suggest that kids have the right to do whatever they want because they have agency is ludicrous. That's ludicrous. And that's kind of an abdication of responsibility on the part of the parent. That's not at all a true principle. That's a deception. Elder Oaks gave another example of this conflict in his speech, Weightier Matters, later on he mentions this. He said, he says, for example, when I was serving here at BYU as BYU president, right, I heard many arguments on BYU's honor code or dress and grooming standards that went like this. It is wrong for BYU to take away my free agency by forcing me to keep certain rules in order to be admitted or permitted to continue as a student. And then Elder Oaks continues, if that silly reasoning were valid, then the Lord who gave us our agency took it away when he gave the Ten Commandments. <laughs> That's a pretty that's a pretty powerful point. <laughs> that of course having commandments or rules or expectations doesn't take away agency. Those things don't take away agency. We are responsible. This is Elder Oaks again. We are responsible to use our agency in a world of choices. It will not do to pretend that our agency has been taken away when we are not free to exercise it without unwelcome consequences. <laughs> this is powerful stuff. Please read this speech. Please enjoy it. Share it. Make sure that your children know about these principles because the world is so full of deception. The world is yielding to so much of Satan's cunning to, to deceive us, to change our understanding of things as they really are. Another example that Elder Oaks gave in this speech concerned diversity. And he said again that diversity is a means, not an ultimate goal. Jesus did not pray, this is Elder Oaks, that his followers would be diverse. He prayed that they would be one. Modern revelation does not say be diverse, and if you are not diverse, ye are not mine. It says be one, and if ye are not one, ye are not mine. He goes on to say diversity can be used as a, a euphemism for moral relativism, and then he really blasts moral relativism. So again, great speech, but think about that. Diversity is a means because right now we are gathering Israel from all parts of the globe. So we bring anybody, you know, black, white, bond or free, you know, male, female. It, I mean, God wants everybody. And everybody will have that opportunity here or in the spirit world to hear the message and to be gathered in if they choose to receive. But if they choose to receive the gospel, then the goal is to become one. So diversity is just one of the stages of gathering Israel from every clime. But it is not the goal. The goal is to become Zion. One heart, one mind, and no poor. That's what the goal is. Diversity is just the means. So again, and then this whole idea of moral relativism, we'll probably talk about that at another time, but really one of Satan's best deceptions, that morality is relative, that it kind of depends on who you're talking about or where you're talking about or what the background is. There is no ultimate truth. There is no black and white when it comes to believing in God or not. Anyway, it's all, it all just depends. And it doesn't depend. There are 
absolute truths in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't give revelation to Christ to change those things. If we're smart, we receive that revelation and act on it so that we can be enlightened and have greater and greater discernment so that we can understand things as they really are. Now comes a a big warning in verse 31 and 32. Behold, here is the agency of man, and here is the condemnation of man, because that which was from the beginning is plainly manifest unto them, and they receive not the light. And every man whose spirit receiveth not the light is under condemnation. So that's a really interesting statement, don't you think? That that which was from the beginning, meaning light and truth, is plainly manifest. And then sometimes we choose to not receive the light. And if we don't receive the light, we're under condemnation. Now, I think that's fascinating that he says it's plainly manifest. And I actually looked up the um, footnotes on that scripture because I was interested in, in exactly what that's, how he's referring to that. So the most interesting footnote to me was from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14 that say, For this commandment, which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou should say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that thou should say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. And we know that the Lord doesn't work in darkness, and he's not out to trick us. God isn't looking for ways to keep us out of the kingdom. He's looking for ways to bring us in. The gospel is plain and precious. It is not obscure. It is not hidden. The light of Christ comes to everybody who comes to this earth. Now, I do believe that there are young children who can have the light of Christ extinguished in them because of abuse or severe exposure to evil, and they are not rec- accountable because that light might be snuffed out or damaged tremendously before they even reach the age of accountability. But that's a rare situation, like in Sodom and Gomorrah or in the Canaanites. And that's why the tribes of Israel were told to to come in and wipe out those peoples because there were children coming into those communities that didn't even have a chance to have that light continue with them until the age of accountability. But that's another topic. The point that we're making here is that God doesn't work in darkness. The light is clear. We are born into this world with light. And if we continue in God, in that light, that light will grow brighter. And if we receive it not, we are under condemnation. It's just. It's merciful because God gives us so many opportunities to experience the light. And everybody will have a fair opportunity. But we are responsible then for our choice as to whether we receive it or we reject it. Then comes this beautiful verse in verse 36, the glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. Light and truth forsake that evil one. So as we grow in the light, we have no desire for deception. We have no desire for evil. We have no desire to see the works of God frustrated. We want to embrace the entire truth and and we receive with gladness the commandments of God. We receive them with thanksgiving because we know the great blessings that are embedded in each one of those commandments. I was thinking about Joseph Smith the other day, and again, just how this man grew from grace to grace, and he did become enlightened by the spirit of truth. And again, a man with a third grade education who became so enlightened and taught by the spirit directly 
So that again and again, there are statements by his colleagues and his leaders in the church that, that served with him or followed him of his incredible intelligence. And I don't believe that Joseph Smith was born as a genius child that, you know, could memorize everything, you know, perfectly or had, you know, anyway, some brilliant, noticeable genius. It's that the glory of God is light and truth and intelligence. So as he grew in righteousness, his mind was enlightened and enlarged. There are things written that say that he was the brightest of the students in the student in the school of the prophets. I mean, those school of the prophets tried to learn lots of things, mathematics and other languages. And Joseph Smith was apparently always the brightest to pick it up. Again, I don't think that was because of some native gift of genius, but because as he grew from grace to grace, his mind was enlightened and it became more intelligent. That is such a draw to me. I mean, don't we all want to be wiser? more enlightened, have greater understanding and greater discernment, then that comes from obedience. Not a surprise. Of course, then comes the big admonition for the rest of this section, starting in verse 40. I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. Command is not a weak word. It's a strong word. I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. And then he specifically takes to task Frederick G. Williams, Sidney Rigdon, and Joseph Smith Jr. Now, that was the first presidency, right? So these are the leaders of the church, and he's saying, you need to put things in order in your life, that you haven't taken care of all the things you need to to teach your family light and truth, and you are falling into to problematic ways. And then he also gives that warning to Newell K. Whitney, who is serving as a bishop. This is pretty interesting. Now, I'm going to say that this just fills me with joy, that God is so consistent and and is never a hypocrite about what he says. I'm thinking about a time when I was meeting with a, a woman who was who was married to a, a man serving as a 70 in one of the quorums of, of our general church leadership. And this was a good woman, and she said her husband's a good man, but there were some issues in terms of putting the family in a position of priority and she had some serious concerns. And at one point, I mean, it broke my heart to hear her say this, but she looked at me and she said, I don't think family first applies to the priesthood leadership of the church. And I, I couldn't stay silent. I said, hang on. I said, hang on. I understand that it might seem that way. And that might be your experience. But I don't believe in that kind of institutional hypocrisy. Because that's what it would be institutional hypocrisy. We are in a church that talks again and again about family first. Families are forever. No success can compensate for failure in the home. The most important work we ever do will be within the walls of our own home, etc., etc., etc. We have a whole proclamation, an official declaration of the church on the family to help us understand the primacy of this eternal unit. This is the way God works through marriage, through family, to accomplish his works. And and then we're saying that family first doesn't apply to the leadership? Well, guess what? It does. And here it is in section 93. Then God is going right for the first presidency and saying, you need to get your priorities straight. Don't forget that it's families first. And whatever I have called you to does not supplant the primacy of family, does not take the place of your focus on family, of teaching your children, bringing up your children in light and truth, and setting things at order in your home. I love that. I love how consistent God is. And of course, how unhypocritical all his teachings are. He does not divide himself. He does not work against himself. Families matter. 
And what a terrific example we have here in section 93. Now, there is a lot I could say about families. I always have so much, and <laughs> there will be more coming. But I'm going to say this. For a long time, I have wished that on the cover of every handbook, there would be this J. Golden Kimball quote that says, it has to be a damn good meeting to be better than no meeting at all. <laughs> Wouldn't that be refreshing? I actually cross-stitched that and gave it to a friend of ours, a good friend of ours who had been called to be a bishop. And I... <laughs> And I think he hung it in his bishop's office for the years that he was the bishop because we have too many meetings in this church and they're too long. I learned as a primary president at age 22 that, you know, my three-hour meetings were a mistake. I just did two or three of those as we were trying to get to know each other as a presidency. And my husband so wisely, and I'm so grateful for this, said, you know, no meeting should last longer than an hour. Have the opening prayer on time and end it an hour later. We should have no guilt service in the in the primary or the relief society or in our priesthood quorums because why do we have to stay for these super long meetings i know one man told us once that he was in a bishopric where part of the bishopric meeting every sunday morning was to watch the bishop open mail that had accumulated during the week and he loved the bishop that he was serving with but he was like really like i have a lot of things i could do for my family if I didn't have to sit here while that mail were being opened. I just think we have to be really careful about what we are letting take the place of family time. The leaders have tried to get us to simplify, to you know, strip down some of our meetings. Of course, we have technology now that allows us to accomplish a lot through texts and emails. So that can really limit the times of meetings or the times where we even need to meet. If we are effective in setting up agendas and assignments and dividing the labor and then touching base through technology, we could probably skip a lot of meetings. I know there are times we need to meet and counsel together and discuss, but there are not nearly as many of those meetings that are required as usually take place in this church. So I'm grateful for the times where I've served with leaders who kept meetings short and canceled meetings when we really had accomplished what we needed to through technology. I hope that we'll never be the kinds of hypocrites that that say family matters and family is forever and we should put our families first, but then that we make it really hard for people to do that. The church has so many offerings, but we don't have to partake of all of them. I remember um, one general authority saying, and I forget who it was, but it was a 70, and we were in Chicago at the time, and he was doing a question and answer session for a Saturday night state conference session with the adults. And somebody asked, what are we supposed to do with all the different church activities that are offered? There are always different, you know, uh, meetings or youth programs or extra firesides and whatever. And she said, if we do all those things, we don't really have time at home as a family to study and learn and grow together. And this general authority I thought was very inspired and said, well, you've got to think of it as a smorgasbord. You don't eat everything at the smorgasbord. You have to pick and choose and you can overdo it and you're not going to be very comfortable or healthy if you do. So be wise and make selections about what serves the family well and what things can be modified or minimized or might be optional. Our Sunday meetings are not optional. We are supposed to attend our Sunday meetings, and we certainly want to make sure that we are available to take the sacrament. But we do not have to beat ourselves to death with activities or meetings. I think the whole COVID thing had has reduced a lot of those meetings, 
And that's a wonderful thing in a way. I mean, I'm not saying COVID was wonderful, but I am saying that some of our leaders, David Bednar gave a, a video speech, remember, where he talked about some of the benefits, and one of the benefits was more family time, time to study the gospel at home. So we were able to put our families first and to have sacrament meetings in, in our own homes. And what a great gift that was for so many to be able to put families at the center of our worship of God. Such a great gift. I want to say another quick thing, and that is that we're raising pretty fragile children, brothers and sisters. We have really, again, kind of fallen for some of the messages of society that sometimes are even the philosophies of a man mingled with scripture, right? And we that is another way that Satan deceives, where he can promote ideas that sound right, but that are not completely right. And while we want to be careful and protective of our children in appropriate ways, we have become very overprotective. In fact, permissiveness has become a, a giant problem in our society where children are not taught very well to be disciplined or respectful or to work and to be patient. You know, uh, there are some studies that show that pediatricians report that they would much rather give a prescription to a parent for some kind of ADHD medication to give to their child. They would much prefer to do that than they would to tell the parent, you need to be better disciplinarians. <laughs> How tragic is that? That that's the choice, you know, either tell this parent to like, hey, teach your kid to wait, teach your kid to be respectful, to take turns, to control their natural man. And they don't want to do that because the parents don't want that. The parents just want a pill. The parents just want to be able to give him some kind of drug so that he can behave better for the teacher and they won't have to, to worry about um, being having complaints at parent-teacher conferences. Not a good strategy. Not a good strategy. We really do need to set things in order and and not let permissiveness invade the church. Well, in some respects, maybe it already has, but we can also thrust it out. We can back up this trend and we can become better at parenting, better at helping our children control their natural man. Great and sobering prophecy by Neil A. Maxwell in a speech called Becometh as a Child from, let me get a date on this. It was... April Conference of 1996, the speech again, Becometh as a Child by Neil Maxwell, he makes this statement. I have no hesitancy, brothers and sisters, in stating that unless checked, permissiveness by the end of its journey will cause humanity to stare in mute disbelief at its awful consequences. I'm reading that again. I have no hesitancy, brothers and sisters, in stating that unless checked, permissiveness by the end of its journey, will cause humanity to stare in mute disbelief at its awful consequences. Let us not be deceived. Let us not think that just because so many parents are not willing to learn how to discipline their children, or maybe I get that some people are over their heads and they don't really have the equipment or the, the knowledge or the skills to do it, but we can learn those things. The Spirit itself can instruct us if we go in honest searching to the Lord and ask for direction and ask to be guided to the right resources and ask for the inspiration of the Spirit in helping our children to harness the natural man and become worthy of the Spirit in their lives and able to receive it. We don't have to be like the rest of the world. The rest of the world, you know, has taken so many ideas and distorted them. We take the idea of making righteous judgment and we get seduced by the philosophies of the world and we mingle that together and we say we shouldn't judge at all. 
doesn't make sense. It wouldn't possibly work. We have to make judgment to use your agency. Reference a speech by Dallin Oaks called Judge Not and Judging, also a BY devotional given several years ago. Or the concept that, that everybody deserves unconditional love. How does that work? How can you love a spouse who lies to you constantly? How can you be responsible to give unconditional love to a spouse that is unfaithful or that won't work or contribute? or that is destructive in other ways and will not change or address those issues. How can we focus on being nice? This is another one of those deceptions where we now think that sometimes being nice is the, is the goal. It's the, it's the ends, not the means. So we don't want to offend anybody. And you look back and say, like, is that really the legacy of the prophets? I mean, look at the prophets' sermons in the scriptures. There were people right and left that were offended by those things, not because the prophet was offensive. And certainly we have a responsibility to not be offensive. But to not offend? Like, how did that get to be the goal? Being kind, yes, but truth is worth stating unapologetically things as they really are things as they were and things as they are to come. Brothers and sisters, we are the recipients of a fullness of truth if we will but receive it and seek diligently to receive more. Such exciting times to be on the earth where we have access to this great discerning power if we will but be obedient and be seekers of truth and receivers of truth and walk in that truth. We can build Zion, brothers and sisters. We can do it. Take care.